thinking about the first 13 together. Romans 14, verse 1, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. That could actually be translated something like without disputing about disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look at verse 3 again, where the issue has to do with religious dietary regulations in very complicated circumstances. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Now, even though the issue is a religious one, having to do with kosher food, diet, uh, idolatry, even though the issue is a religious one, the problem is a moral, spiritual one. Looking down on other people or condemning them. I've often seen this kind of thing, this looking down on others. I've seen it from atheists towards theists whom they despise as gullible or naive or just plain stupid. I've been on the receiving end of that. I've also seen it from uh, the Jesus Seminar folks who treat intelligent people like children or fools because they believe in the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. I've seen it from the pro-gay marriage folks who scorned anyone who opposes gay marriage as a savage. I got an email once from someone who simply said, people like you no longer matter. That's all it said. That looking down on others' attitude is famously present among the liberal elite, both in politics and academia. That conservatives are brainless, uh, hard-hearted, mean-spirited imbeciles in their circles is a matter of orthodoxy. It's just the way it is. This way of treating people is intentional. It extends to them no dignity and judges them to be of no worth the word for this kind of attitude is contempt. It's played a large part in American history. I mean, let's face it, that word describes how white people in our country treated black people for generations and still do in many places. It's the way some men treat women and some women treat men. It's a symptom and a consequence of pride and it has no place at all in the Christian community. If I think I'm better than someone else because of my skin color or my gender or my party allegiance or my IQ or my religion, I fail to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Years ago, some kids in an Ivy League school were caught vandalizing the campus. Because they had wealthy parents who were also donors, the situation was brought to the attention of the president and he handled it himself. He met with the vandals. He reprimanded them for their behavior. But while he was still talking, one of the kids, the wealthiest and most arrogant of the group, interrupted him and said, what's the big deal? Just tell me what it costs and I'll pay for it. That's when the president lost his temper. 
He was trying to be diplomatic, but at that point he just lost it. And with raised voice, he said, I don't want your money. Do you think a few miserable dollars will ever repay your debt to the founders of the university and the sacrifice they made to build this place and to endow it with such great care and cost? Then he said this, every one of you is a charity case, only you don't know it. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that every one of us here is a charity case. We are in the church entirely and only because of the contribution of another. It is pure charity, bleeding charity. So who are we to look down our noses on anyone? Contempt has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Contempt is only half of the problem, though. As verse 3 makes clear, the other half is condemnation. Contempt says, you're beneath my notice. Whereas condemnation says, you are worthy of my hatred. I've seen contempt from atheists towards theists, but I've also seen condemnation from theists towards atheists. I've seen it from conservatives towards liberals. I've seen it from people who oppose gay marriage towards those who support it. They want God to condemn their opponents. They hate them. Contempt and condemnation are like two poles of an electromagnetic field. We can distinguish between them, but they come from the same source, pride. When people encounter one of these contempt, condemnation fields, they can feel it, and if they're good people, they'll be repelled by it. Unfortunately, some churches exhibit powerful contempt, condemnation fields. Contempt and condemnation are primary tools for defining a group saying this is who we are as opposed to who they are, providing identity, creating a sense of security. But they are highly corrosive. They destroy the people who use them. They disfigure their souls. Contempt and condemnation ruin the lives and relationships of the people who use them. It's no wonder Jesus addressed both of these in the Sermon on the Mount. Contempt and condemnation have done terrible things in academia and politics. They turned colleges that were once think tanks into group think tanks. They've rendered Congress where contempt and condemnation are practically a science, profoundly dysfunctional. But it is worse. It is far worse when they show up in the church. In the church, when you hear people say things like, people in that church, they don't even know the first thing about the Bible. That's, con that's contempt. When they say, oh, I don't think they're even Christians, they're just evil. That's condemnation. Contempt and condemnation had come to the church at Rome. And that was a cause of great concern for the Apostle Paul. It was some of the Gentile Christians who were showing contempt, treating Jewish Christians as unsophisticated, unintelligent, altogether beneath them. And because contempt and condemnation are two poles of the same evil, 
the Jewish Christians were condemning the Gentile Christians as reprehensible sinners who didn't even care about holiness. When contempt and condemnation come to church, people get hurt. But not just within the church, outside the church as well. If there was a spiritual CDC, they would be issuing warnings about the epidemic of contempt and condemnation in the church. Donald Kinneman, who was a researcher with the Barna Group, found that nearly 9 out of 10 non-Christians under the age of 30 say that the term judgmental accurately describes present-day Christianity. Who are the Christians? They're the judgmental ones. And almost that many say that they know at least one committed Christian, but they don't believe that Christians are different from anyone else. I think it's important to say that Lockwood has done pretty well at avoiding these contagions of contempt and condemnation. Our annual meeting tonight, I think, is evidence of that. We can have and express strong opinions. We can disagree about things without resorting to contempt or condemnation. That's a testimony to God's work in our lives. But we need to go all the way and rid LCC of every vestige of contempt and condemnation. We need to make this our personal responsibility to see that it happens. Lockwood must never be a place where people look down on other people or condemn them. Now, how do we get there? How do we go about that? Maybe we should form a contempt and condemnation unit that can patrol the church grounds, sort of the way the emergency preparedness team does. And whenever they hear someone using contempt or condemnation, they can quarantine them. They can put them over in the pastor's office and lock them in for an hour or something. Or maybe we can just rid ourselves of these ugly things by sheer determination. I'm just not going to do that. I'm afraid it doesn't work that way because these things are too deeply ingrained in us for that. By the time most of us reach 12 or 13, we're taking large doses of condemnation and contempt. Those things are peddled in the halls of middle school and high school in vast amounts. And kids are imbibing them at home long before they even go to school. Liberals are evil. Conservatives are just dumb. Members of other churches are all wrong. How can we escape that? Well, Romans 14 tells us how. And it's rather counterintuitive. Churches don't stamp out contempt and condemnation by putting on diversity training or communication workshops or even by trying to develop a culture of caring. At least that's not how it starts. There's groundwork that needs to be done prior to these things. Contempt and condemnation can only be purged from our souls through our connection with Jesus, not through our connection with each other. Only if we get the relationship right with him can we get the relationship right with each other. It starts with him. If we get in line with Jesus, we won't be out of line with each other. Well, how do we get in line with Jesus? We confess him. Remember chapter 10? We confess him, Lord, and we live our confession. See, this passage begins by stating the problem and then it ends by restating the problem. But sandwiched in the middle in verses 4 through 9 is the solution. The problem is contempt and condemnation in the church. You see that in verse 3, verse 4, verse 10, verse 13. 
So the issue had to do with kosher laws and religious observance of the law. But the problem was contempt and condemnation between Christians. The solution in verses 4 through 9 is living with Jesus as Lord. Now, religion alone is not a solution. In fact, it frequently makes matters worse. Confessing and especially living Jesus as Lord is the solution. The word Lord makes a remarkable eight appearances in its noun form and one appearance in its verb form in the middle section of this text, just from verse 4 to verse 9. When we obey Jesus as our Lord, we will not express contempt for other people. We will not condemn them. If someone is always looking down his religious nose at others, you can be sure that he's not looking up to Jesus as his Lord. Contempt and condemnation will only be driven out of the church when they're driven out of us. And the only power capable of that is the power of Jesus as Lord. John Stott said the secret of our relationships with one another in the Christian church, especially when we have our differences, the secret is Jesus Christ is Lord. To despise or stand in judgment on a fellow Christian isn't just a break of fellowship. It is a denial of the lordship of Jesus. I need to say to myself, who am I that I should cast myself in the role of another Christian's Lord and judge? I must be willing for Jesus Christ to be not only my Lord and judge, but also my fellow Christian's Lord and judge. I mustn't interfere with Christ's lordship over other Christians. One of the assumptions behind this passage is that even in the church of Jesus Christ, people will disagree about many and sometimes consequential things. That's okay. We can survive our disagreements. We can even thrive in the midst of them, but only if we subordinate our disagreements to our one overarching agreement that Jesus is Lord. He calls the shots. He's the boss. See, indifference to the lordship of Jesus virtually guarantees that our differences with each other will produce contempt and condemnation. And then they'll eat us alive. But when I'm living with Jesus as Lord, and verses 6 through 8 describe what that looks like in a beautiful way, everything I do, and all my relationships, and everything that happens to me, I see in the light of the fact that I belong to the Lord Jesus. When that's true, the way I think about myself and others will start to change. And it will change in a predictable fashion. When I am living, not just talking, that's key, but living, Jesus is Lord, I will remember that the people who disagree with me, they belong to God, and he's accepted them. Uh, the word in verse 3 could be translated, welcomed them. He's welcomed them. And if he's welcomed them, who am I to send them away? Imagine you're over at my house, and we're visiting, and, and I suddenly say, hey, I got something I want to show you. It'll just be a minute down in the basement. I'll be right back. And while I'm downstairs getting that thing, one of my neighbors comes to the door and knocks on the door, and he has a petition. 
But instead of welcoming my neighbor, you shoo him away. You say, we don't want that stuff. Get out of here. Who are you to shoo away my neighbor whom I welcome? Did you forget whose house you were in? But that's what happens in the church. When we reject people, God has welcomed. We've forgotten whose house we're in. When Jesus is my Lord, I come to see, this is verse 4, I have no business condemning God's servant, even if I don't like what that servant is doing, even if what he or she is doing is not right. Now, there is a place for lovingly confronting people, but that's very different from condemning or showing contempt. Imagine if Dave Pierce over at First Baptist Church, the pastor at First Baptist, called our youth pastor up and read him the riot act for spending too much money on the winter retreat and told him that he was fired. I wouldn't be too happy with my friend Dave. Dave, what are you doing? He's not your youth pastor. But that's the kind of thing that happens when I treat one of God's servants as though he or she belongs to me. As the Lordship of Jesus works its way into every area of my life, I will realize that the person who disagrees with me, who of course is wrong, I mean, they're disagreeing with me, right? They have to be wrong. That person's going to stand before the Lord in judgment. But you know how I realize that? Because I realize that I'm going to stand in that same place. Look at verse 10. It's as if Paul has looked up and seen before him the tribunal, the, in Greek, the bema, before which he and all believers will someday stand. And he says, look, you who are busy condemning people and you who are busy despising people, look, there is a real judgment seat before which you and those people will stand. Verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. It's important to understand that relationships are a primary area, maybe the primary area, in which Jesus is Lord. We talk about a spiritual life, and sometimes we are able to move Jesus' Lordship over into our spiritual life, whatever that is. He is the Lord of our relationships, too. My brother-in-law, Mike Kadratz, a pastor, when he first started, um, yeah, when he first started pastoring, he started as an associate pastor in a church of maybe 200 people. <clears throat> and there was one day he told me he had this day is just full of interruptions and he had a lot to do and he was really flustered. And at the end of the day, he told his lead pastor, I didn't get any work done today. People kept interrupting me. And the lead pastor said to him, Mike, those people are your work. You know, I can see how that kind of attitude happens with us, too. We think our real work is preaching or teaching. It's compassion ministry, like family promise. It's mission trips. And the people who don't see eye to eye with us are getting in the way of the real work. But those people are the real work. What the church is doing in the world is always of secondary importance. What God is doing in the church, I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is of foremost importance. Our unity under Jesus, we who are different in so many ways, is a sign to the principalities and powers that Christ's rule has begun. A gospel church is not just one that has its doctrine of soteriology right. It's one that lives Jesus is Lord. In modern India, as in ancient Rome, the differences in the church are not just doctrinal, but they're social. They're ethnic, they're racial. Indian society is stratified by thousands of years of the caste system. An Indian pastor once told Philip Yancey, most of what happens in Christian churches, he's talking about in India, most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But only Christians strive to mix men and women of different castes and races and social groups. That's the real miracle. What does that look like here? It looks like people caring for each other and accepting each other despite our differences. As we form our lives around Jesus, the Lord, not around our differences, not around political parties, around Jesus, the Lord. Luke Vase tells a story that illustrates the point. He says there's a well-to-do church in a big college town where, where many of the college faculty and some wealthy donors attended this big church. People dressed in expensive clothes, and the church had this strong country club feel about it. You walked in the doors, and you felt like you were among wealthy people. One day, a wild-haired young college student, <clears throat> dressed in jeans, grungy t-shirt, flip-flops, came in late, just in time for the sermon. He'd recently given his life to Christ in a campus Bible study, and someone told him he should start going to church, so he did. So he comes in late, church is packed, every eye is on this guy as he walks down the center aisle looking for a place to sit. He nearly reaches the pulpit and still hasn't found a seat, so he sits down on the floor right in front of the stage. And the congregation is like, oh, what's going to happen? Then a gray-haired man sitting in the back in an expensive suit, one of the elders in the church, gets up from his pew and he starts walking down the aisle with his cane towards the newcomer. People are worried about what this man in his 80s is going to say to this college kid on flip-flops on the floor. See, nobody wants a scene, right? The pastor had already walked up to the microphone. He's getting ready for his sermon, but he realizes that he has no one's attention in the whole place, so he pauses. Every eye is on the old man as he reaches the newcomer. People are holding their breath. And then the elder drops his cane, and with great difficulty, he lowers himself to the floor so that he can sit with the college kid. Once he's seated, the pastor says, what I'm about to preach, you'll never remember. But what you've just seen, you'll never forget.
condemnation and contempt. They are everywhere in our society. They are pervasive. You can't have a TV sitcom or a talk show without them. If you banned condemnation and contempt, especially contempt, from political talk radio, it would vanish within a month. They would all go out of business. Those things are at the barbershop, they're at the grocery store, they're at the school, they're at the gym. They are a staple of our culture, and they are anathema in our church. They undo all the good work that we're doing. They testify against the rule of Christ. We must repent of condemnation and contempt and reaffirm Jesus is Lord. Now, if you say, but I'm right about this, I must answer, you know, maybe you are. You're right, but Jesus is Lord, and which do you think is more important? Get rid of condemnation and contempt. If you say, but wait a minute, there are essentials upon which we must not compromise, I'll agree with you wholeheartedly. There are some things on which we cannot compromise, but there is no thing on which we ought to use contempt. We need to remember St. Augustine's wise counsel. In necessary things, unity. In uncertain things, liberty. In all things, charity. All right, let's pray. Oh God, by your Spirit, teach us what it means for Jesus to be Lord in our lives and in our church. For Jesus to be judge and not us. Lord, banish from our lives, from our hearts, any kind of contempt for others, condemnation, remove it from us. And do this, Lord. Do this for the sake of Jesus, who has taken up his rule in us. Amen.